Well, good morning and greetings, Christ's worthy name to each one of you. It's a blessed privilege to be gathered together with you. Um, this idea of rest and refreshment is a little more clear to me. If you think about um, returning from a mission and uh, coming back from a work, it's a great joy to be here with you. I think I told uh, Brother Stephen last night that while we seen a bit of hell um, in the last two days, um, the fellowship of the brothers in the evenings was a bit of heaven. It was a great joy to sit together, to laugh together, to recount the challenges that we had together, to um, laugh at our stumbles, you know, and it was just a, a real blessing. But this morning it is again the same way to gather together with the people of God and to, you know, if you don't enjoy worship, you won't enjoy heaven. So, um, let's just uh, remember that, that God is preparing us for that place. For that, that uh, greatest of all um, exercises is to worship Him. And if that's what we're going to do for an eternity, He intends that to, to start here and now. If you would open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, would like to read a portion of Scripture that bridges from verse 39 to chapter 12, verse 6, and have a standalone passage or message here. I'm, I'm leaving uh, my exposition of the Gospel of John this morning. I did not have the time that I wanted to give to the, uh, the John passage, John chapter 8. So I've come here, and I hope that you will bear uh, with me as we move through this passage. And I want to begin in verse 39 of Hebrews chapter 11. And this was a passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 was a passage of Scripture Brother Terry had us read on Friday morning. And... Uh, it was a blessing. I want to pick up in verse 39 and read through verse 6 of chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now this morning I'm not preaching a Father's Day message, but I too would like to extend well wishes on Father's Day to you. But this passage could be preached as a Father's Day message. For the love of the Father is found here in this passage. And if you are not partakers of the chastening of the Father, then you are not a son. And so we could go right there for whom the Lord loves. On this Father's Day, He scourges every one of those sons whom He receives. Well, let's consider this portion of God's Word together. First of all, this passage is an exhortation to the Christian church to first prepare and then to run. To first prepare and then to run a race. And the title of this, passage, of this, of this message would be The Race of Faith. And as we look at this portion, this exhortation is bracketed. It is bracketed or bookended by two motivating, uh, by two great motivations. If you look here uh, in this passage, we read about them. And the entire chapter 11 is a grand gallery, so to speak. It's the hall of faith, if you would. It's the, it is where our heroes should be found. You know, we all need heroes. We need heroes to emulate. We need heroes to follow after. We need heroes that we would like our children to follow after. We need heroes of the faith, and we have them in Hebrews chapter 11. A great gallery. It's the hall of fame, so to speak, of God's people. And it is, it is, it is not a comprehensive list, obviously, because there are many here who are not even named. But we have this list given here. We have chapter 11 given as a gallery of faithful men and women who believed in God and they demonstrated it in action. Because after all, that was redundant, wasn't it? You can't have true belief and not action. Okay, so this is this chapter 11 is a Beautiful chapter. Indeed, it would be helpful for our understanding to go all the way back to chapter 10 and verse 19 and begin our section there. Uh, to read from chapter 10, verse 19, all the way to our text. But for today, we begin in verse 39 of chapter 11. And it begins with, And all these, all these, Verse 39, and all these, and we know that this is referencing back to chapter to this very chapter where we speak about Abel, and we speak about Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, Jacob, 
Joseph, Moses. Um, we, we read of, of um, Rahab. We, we see of Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, Barak, David, Samuel, and the prophets. We have all of these here. And all of these, and all these, it says, they're highlighted. And their faith is testified of or witness of who they are. Notice what it says, and all these having obtained a good report or having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. Their faith here was a testimony to them. It's, it's that word report and it's that word witness. If you go back to the Greek, it is that word where we get the word martyr from. And then those who were martyred in the early Christian church were giving a proof of their of their, uh, they were giving a witness of their faith. And so here, their faith was testifying about who these people actually were. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. And that faith was what gave them their good testimony. That they were indeed pilgrims and strangers on the earth, and that they were those whom the world was not worthy. And interestingly, one commentary said, well, I think it was uh, Matthew Henry. He said, I'm not sure if it, if it was him now or not, but said that, you know, the world was not worthy of them. So God prepared for them a city that was out of this world. And that is, that is indeed true that. God did prepare for them His city. They desired God, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. The proof of His glory in them is is the city that He prepared for them. If we go back to chapter chapter 11 to verse 13, verse 13 through 16, if you would just flip back. These all, again we have these all. These all died in faith, not having received the promise or not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly, there's a confession made in their actions and even in their words. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. That they are not at home, in other words, you see. See, they're on a journey, they're on a race, and they are, as they are demonstrating their faith, as they're living their faith, as they are believing the promises, reaching out to them, embracing them, and they were confessing that they were strangers and pilgrims in their present condition, you see. So if, if, if you're... You know, the challenge to us here is the actions that we portray, are we at home here or are we not? You see. But these men, all of these men and women, they died in faith, not having received these promises. For those who say such things, verse 14 declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared a city 
for them. Praise the Lord. We have here men and women who simply embraced promises given to them. It affected them in such a fashion. And these promises were received by them in faith, and which is just, it is the noun of the, of the word believe, you see. These all died in faith, and by their actions, they glorified God to the point that God was not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Think about it. By your earthly journey, God is, is not ashamed to be called your God. And He prepares for you a city. And the fact that He prepares for us a city indicates His glory in us. And I, I just had to think of Job, where the devil came before God. And, and, you know, the devil didn't bring up Job. God brought him up. Have you considered my servant Job? You see, that God was glorying in his servant Job. It's a wonderful thing. Notice that these all died in faith. Death came before the promise. Death came before the promise. By the eyes of their faith, though, they seen the promise afar off and were assured of them. They embraced them and yet confessed that they were not home yet. And we sang that hymn this morning. We're almost home. We're not quite there yet. But our eyes are beholding the shore. We see it on the far side. We're almost home. Don't cast a single anchor. We're getting close. We're on a journey. We're sailing. We're racing. We're on a race for home. And by our actions, we are showing that we're not home. Or by our actions, we are showing that we are home. That this is currently our home. One or the other. You can't have a home here and one there. So our text in verse 39 also indicates here that their faith... It says that their faith vindicated them. It vindicated them even though they did not receive the promise. Now notice in verse 40. There's a new pronoun introduced in verse 40. And this pronoun is two letters. The word us. The word us. Now this connects the past to the present. What he is saying here, what this writer is telling us, is that that which was in the past, that, that, that which they, they, the promises that they had, God has now provided even something better for us. Something better for us. And it connects the past to the present. And the writer now begins the application of all that he recounted in chapter 11. The whole reason for recounting all of chapter 11 and the lives of David and Samuel and, and all the prophets and Barak and, and Noah is now being brought to bear, you see. 
God having provided something better for us. God's provision for us is better than what He provided for them. You see that? He tells his reader that God provided something better for us than for the Old Testament saints than what they received. Something better. Let me ask you, what is better than a promise? What is better than a promise? Yes, exactly. The fulfillment of the promise, you see. What is better than a shadow? What is better than a type? What happened between the writing of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40, and the prophets of the Old Testament? Well, we know what happened. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of our Savior. Christ came. The fulfillment here is it's the fulfillment versus the promise. It's the substance versus the shadow, you see. Notice this word better. This word better here in, chapter, in verse 40. Used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. 13 times in the book of Hebrews. This word is used and, it, and, and it's implied in others. Have, for instance, having received a more excellent ministry than they. That's the same idea, something better. And what, what the writer, and we don't know for sure who the writer is of Hebrews, but the writer is endeavoring to show the Jewish people that there is something better. We have so many things better in the New Testament church than what the Jewish people had. Better this, better that. It's the overarching theme in the book of Hebrews. Let me just point out a few of the better things that we have. Having provided something better. God's providence provided something better for us than for David and Noah. Think about that. What a blessing we have, you see. Better than the angels? Better expectations? Better hope? Better covenant? Better promises? Better high priests? Better sacrifices? Better country? Better resurrection? Thirteen times in Hebrews So what's the point? What's the point here? Why is the writer recounting all of chapter 11 and all the victories that they had, all the wonderful things, the flights of the alien armies, the overcoming things that they accomplished, women receiving their dead to life again, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder. All of these things. How did they do that? They 
did that by the promises that God gave them through faith in those promises. Now, okay, you see, the point is, how much more should we be running this race? How much more is laid upon us? These people did all this with a lesser revelation. They did this with a lesser revelation than we have here in Believer's Chapel of Tuloma. They run a successful race with lesser sacrifices, with lesser promises than we do. They were perfected with a lesser revelation. They ran the race of faith with lesser motivation, with lesser examples. All of these things. That's the point here. Chapter 40. I mean, verse 40. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They're made perfect. They would not be entering, entering into the city if, the, if God would not have made them perfected enough, you know, wouldn't have given them salvation. But we are made perfect together with them with a greater revelation. Therefore, you see, therefore we also. Now it's our turn, you see. We also, go up and down the benches, it's now our turn. It's now our turn. Your race day is here. The starting pistol is about to go off for you. Your race day is here. You are up now. You know, it's where the rubber meets the road is when you step on the stool, right? You brothers know what I mean. You're up next. Whether your limbs are quivering or not, you're up next. We are up next. We, us, you, you're up now. Abraham has his prize. Noah has his reward. Moses has finished his race, you see. They have run their course. Paul has said, I have run the course. Now it's you and me running with a brighter finish line, running with a clearer course, you see, running with a better example than they did. We have more reasons to believe. than the Old Testament saints had. We have this principle found. If you would just flip back in chapter 2, we have this principle found. I want to point out two places where this principle of extraordinary blessing given to the New Testament church. Notice what he says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore... We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken then, 
spoken through angels, through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Through, if, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression of that law and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, you see? When He began to speak to us about this Great salvation and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How are we going to escape with the greater revelation of Jesus Christ and his ministry and the great salvation that he spoke of in the Gospels and then was confirmed to us by signs, by by the Heavenly Father giving us Signs and wonders and the gifts through the Holy Spirit. Indeed, there we have the principle of greater blessing given to the New Testament church than the Old, Old Testament saints have had. And then you flip back to chapter 10 in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 10. We see it again. We could begin in verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment Do you suppose, will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? You see, where there is greater revelation, there's greater responsibility. And where there is greater clarity, there's a greater call for obedience. So flipping back as we continue to look at this race, this race of faith, what is your faith doing? What are you doing? Notice here in verse in chapter 12 as we continue in this text. Therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud So massive a cloud of witness. There's the motivation on the front end. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let me say this about this passage. We we have a race that is set before us. It is... Our race to run, but, it's, but the race course does not belong to us. The race course is set before us. You're called to run it. You're not called to argue about what this course is like. You're not called to debate about this, that, or the other. You're just simply called to run. 
We're not called to define what we're to run with, who we're to run with, how we're to run. We're called to run. We do not get to choose the climate or the geography or the obstacles or the length or the races or or the racers that are running alongside of us or the prize. We simply are called to run. And this, this came out over this, the last couple days as we were ministering. We're not called to produce converts. We're simply called to run. We're called to obey. We're called to run the race. We're not called to decide who wins the prize. We're not called to look at one another and say, well, you, you know, this, this, that, or the other. No. The race is set before us. It is defined for each one of us. It has a race master. He brings us into the race and He calls us to run. Some of us are running. Some of us are sitting on the side. Some of us are resting. Some of us are not on the course. Some of us haven't begun the race. But we're called to run this race. We have a great cloud of witnesses. And how will you run? You will run if your faith, if you have faith, you will run. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you will run for Him. You see, this is a run. This is a race of faith. And this faith, as he speaks about in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, or the originator and perfecter of our faith. And I believe that we can look at this course, this race course. This course is the faith of, you could say, Ephesians 4.13, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Uh, Colossians 1.23 says this way, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded in steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Colossians 2.7 Rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. This is the race course, you see. Running... A race that is defined by the body of Christian doctrine. That's that's the course that we're on. We are called to run in relation to the faith of God's elect, as Titus speaks of. Titus 1.4 actually refers to this. um, Let me flip through that. Titus 1.4 says this way, To Titus, a true Son in our common faith. So this race of faith, though it is, it is in a sense subjective about whether or not we will believe it, whether or not we will put stock in it, but it is an objective body of doctrine. It is an objective body of truth. It is it is that which is biblical truth. It is Christian doctrine. And you know, Second Timothy says. This way, in verse 
2, in chapter 2, verse 30, in verse 3, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy in verse 3, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier. Is that where it stops? Is that where it stops? Somebody finish it. Yes, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier. And then it defines the soldier of Jesus Christ. You might be a soldier. You might give yourself to a different cause. But that's not what we're talking about in Hebrews 12. We're talking about a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're talking about one who, that, one who limits himself to running in a certain fashion. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So if, if we are running a race, we must define what that race is. We must understand that the race is defined by none other than Jesus Christ and by His revealed Word and by His doctrine and by the doctrine of Christian practice and looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We must run this sort of race. And as we do, there are certain, we have certain things said about how we run it. Notice that there is a laying aside. There's a laying aside here. Let us lay aside every weight. Now this, this is a work of preparation. You don't, you don't run halfway through the race normally with a backpack. You, 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 you lay these things aside before we start. You, you have, you're laying, but, but I think because of our, of our humanity, because as we mature, we begin to lay off more and more. And so we do begin with weights upon us and that we discard along the side. And the, and the racetrack is littered with things that we thought were important. And as we have run, we have cast them back. We've cast this off. We've cast that off. That backpack that we had, we just don't need it. We lay aside these weights. Now listen, this weight is different from sin. This weight is an individual choice. You must lay aside anything that hinders your running, you see. Anything that hinders your running. Anything that shortens your stride. Anything that affects your wind. Think about it. You're running. You have a brother over here. Maybe he has a backpack on. Maybe he's able to run with a backpack. But let us lay aside every weight. These are individual choices that as we run, we begin to, be, to grow in understanding and we lay aside these weights. We, we throw them aside. Now sin... Notice what it says about this sin and the sin. Lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now, sin is not defined by individual choice. There's no individual choice here. As soon as sin is revealed, it is cast off. You don't have the option of running with sin. You're to lay 
that aside immediately. Sin is not defined or decided by you or, or me. It is defined by the race master. Now I believe in the, in the context of this passage that he's speaking of the sin of unbelief particularly. I do believe that's what he is referring to. As we, as, we are, as we are going through and walking with Christ, we are continually laying aside those things that we once didn't believe or the things that we, that we once held that were un, not true to the doctrine. Think about it. We all have those. We have those blind spots, but as they are revealed, we lay them aside. And so the sin of unbelief, how does it not cling to us? You know, that is why we are not running like we should. Because we have a lack of faith. But as our faith gets stronger, we, we, we run faster. We run more, with more intention. We run with more discipline. And we are no longer drifting from this side of the track to this side of the track. You know, we're running in a straight line. We're staying in our lane. You know, if you don't stay in your lane in track and field, I believe you're disqualified. So, this sin of unbelief so easily ensnares us and trips us up. So, as we look at this passage, we must run, not only run, but we must run with endurance, or we must run with patience. It's not enough to run halfway around the track. It's not enough. You know, they went out from us because they were not of us. There are those who make a profession, and they start out, and, and, and the seed pops up, and it, it, but as soon as there's affliction, as soon as there's suffering, there's a withering that goes with that. In chapter 6, in verse 11, it says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and, inherit, and patience. See, faith coupled with endurance, faith coupled with patience, will inherit the promise. And so, the prize is for those who finish the course. For those who finish the course, looking unto Jesus, having your eye fixed on your forerunner, looking unto Jesus. Now here is the great motivation on the back side of the passage. You have those in the, on the front side, all those, that great cloud of witness. Now you have Christ, who is the counterbalance maybe to all of these others. And we have Christ as this great example of living and running this course of faith. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to just briefly look back at the example of Moses in this, in this passage. 
Let's just quickly flip back. I don't have very much time. By faith, Moses, verse 24. When he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He did not, and he did not identify with the culture. Though he was brought up in Pharaoh's house, he did not identify. His identity was not with the, the culture, but rather with the people of God. He, he was born, he was a proper child, and he was brought up by his Hebrew parents until maybe he was weaned. I don't know how long that is. But then he went and lived. But there was, such, there was so much input in there that when he grew up, when he became of age, he refused the culture. Choosing rather, and see, here we go. By faith, faith refuses. Faith chooses, you see. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Faith refuses. Faith chooses. Faith esteems. Notice, he esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches. There is a priority here. Moses was interested in running this race, and so he, he esteemed certain things over others, you see. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he seen, he looked, he saw. How did he see? By the eyes of faith, he looked to the reward. You know, yesterday I preached from this passage. And I, I told the crowd, those, those wicked people who were walking by, and I told them it is, I would rather stand on the stool and preach and bear the reproach of Christ than to walk with them in the sins of Bonnaroo. How many of those people do you think would have rather traded and jumped on that stool and preached the Word of God? None. But it is faith, you see. It is faith looking to the reward. We are called to suffer the reproach of Christ. There are passing pleasures of sin. There are pleasures of sin, but they're passing away. There are treasures in America. There are treasures in Egypt. But there are much greater treasures in that city up ahead. And so we believe in those things. We believe this is a race of faith. And are we... Are we dragging along everything else that we're thinking is treasures and pleasures? Or are we chucking them? Because he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook. You see, there's just, just, just all this embracing, esteeming, forsaking, choosing, refusing going on by faith. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. How's that for standing up to the culture? For he endured, how? How did he endure? As seeing him who is invisible. Only through the eyes of faith are you going to behold this glorious king. Only through the eyes of faith. That is the way God is chosen to relate to his people. By faith. He could have chosen a different way. But He is glorified when you receive His Word and you act on it, you see. He says, my character is of such a nature that when I say something, it's true. And you glorify me when you act on it, when you consider my Word to be true, you see. God is greatly glorified by that. 
he endured as seeing him who is invisible. See, he is invisible. But brothers and sisters, we're called to look unto Jesus. He is invisible. We have a historic record of him, though. We have it contained here. Let's put our faith in the revealed word of God who speaks of his running before us who for the joy that was set before him, see, he endured just the, way he, just the way Moses did, you see. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. That is that joy that was set before him, knowing that he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, listen, brothers and sisters, we're called to that city. We're called to it. For the joy that is set before us, let's labor for that city. Let's, let's, let's labor for that kingdom. Let's go forth and run this race who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, not esteeming the shame. See, Moses back here, he esteemed the reproach now over here, we see Christ disesteeming the shame. What it, it's simply what it means. He, he did not, he, 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 he thought little of the shame. I believe that's what he means here. He thought little of the shame because he was doing the work that God sent him to do. And now he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, verse 3, for consider him, consider him, contemplate him. Look on him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. That word simply, that word hostility simply means contradiction i think that's what the king james uses for consider him who endured such contradiction from sinners against himself or i think the greek word is if i pronounce it correctly is antologia maybe that's simply what it means it's not even logical but listen whatever it does mean in that in the greek sense it is the idea of hostility and strife and it is speaking about contradicting, speaking back, speaking evil. And what a picture of that we've seen the last two days. You say something for Christ, and you say something for God, and they say God is dead. We say Jesus is Lord, and they mock. They contradict. And Jesus Christ faced that continually, where he might say something and they contradict him and they speak evil of and they retort and they, yes, they blaspheme. For consider him who endured such contradiction, such speaking back from sinners against himself. And what we, what we experienced the last two days was not against us. But when Christ was out there, it was personal. You see, and so as we consider him, as we look to him, that is how 
we endure. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you, lest I, become weary and discouraged in our souls. Remembering that Christ has run this race before us and that he has endured hostility greater and meant personally for him. They hated him because they hated his father as well. Well, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Maybe that's a clue about who wrote this. <laughs> you think? I don't know. The writer here says to the Jerusalem church probably, to the Hebrew church, you guys haven't resisted to bloodshed yet. Striving against sin. And in contrast to that, we have Christ who in his striving against sin went to the cross and shed his blood. Look at him. Look at this great example. You have a much greater example to follow than the Old Testament saints did. You have one who went before you and died for you. You can look back on that. He resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, but we have not, he says. Consider how he endured. Consider what he bore for us, striving against sin. And see, this is, this is ultimately what we're doing. We're striving against sin, are we not? And when we think about this race, we lay aside every sin, we lay aside every weight, and every sin that so easily ensnares us. As we run this race, this course of faith, striving against sin, we recognize that sometimes we sin. Do you see? We recognize that sometimes we sin. That is what 5 and 6 are talking about. Verses 5 and 6, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, esteem the chastening of the Lord. That's another way of saying that. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. By faith, esteem it when you are corrected. When you have sinned, when the race master says, stay in your lane. And so, my son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him, because we need that, don't we? Don't we? We do. We do. We're striving against sin and our Heavenly Father is on our side. He is with us. He is striving against sin in my life. And see, it's so very personal here. We don't just look at our fellow racer and say, well, you've got a big old sin strapped on your back. No, we are, we are, we are first of all, considering our own sin. My son... Don't despise when you're corrected. Don't, don't despise that. Nor be discouraged. Don't hang your head. It's a fact of life. It's a fact of life we are encompassed about with weakness, you see. And we sin. But when you're corrected, lift up your head and say, Praise God, I got rid of that one. This is another opportunity to, he to throw that in the trash heap. 
to throw it in the ditch that lies along the side, to throw that baggage off for whom the Lord loves. He chastens. And He scourges every son that He receives. Let's run. Let's run this race. Are you in the race? Have you begun the race? Are you weary and discouraged? Sometimes we are. Sometimes I am. We need to look unto Jesus again. We need to look to Jesus Christ again. But that's what he's saying. Consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, knowing that by the grace of God we will prevail, we will continue, we will endure, we will run to the end. But brothers and sisters, come back into your lane. Throw off that which is causing you to lose your step, to shorten your stride. That which is causing you to gasp for air. You're, you're, you're running with too much. Throw it aside. Embrace the rules of the course and run the race of faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. We thank You for the glorious testimony of how the Old Testament saints ran this race of faith and how indeed we should be challenged with a greater revelation that we should run. Lord, Father, I just pray that You would, you would fill us with a, a desire to get on this race course and to run for You. Father, I ask Your blessing upon each one here as we contemplate this passage of Scripture And exhort us, Father, to look to Christ, to see His running for us and how He run the race for us. Father, I just pray that You would fill us with a willingness to to receive Your correction, to receive Your scourging, to not be discouraged when You correct us. Thank You for Your great love for us, Father. And we pray this in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.